Sexual harassment and gender bias are highly prevalent in medicine, and there's growing evidence that they have damaging effects on physicians' well-being, physicians' careers, and the quality of care. Although much attention is focused on the responsibility of organizations to address inequity and harassment, there's been less attention to the ethical obligations of people who witness harassment and inequitable treatment in their work life. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michelle Mello, a professor of law and of health research and policy at Stanford University. Professor Mello has co-authored a perspective article on the moral imperative for individual action to end sexual harassment and gender bias. Professor Mello, what kinds of efforts have health organizations made to address sexual harassment and gender bias in recent years? And why do you think that that's not enough? All healthcare organizations now have very well-established processes for reporting and responded to reports of sexual harassment, both of the quid pro quo variety and the hostile work environment variety. The reason these processes don't always get us where we need to be is, number one, people don't always use them. We know there are lots of reasons why both the targets of sexual harassment and those who witness it may hesitate to report, including their organization's poor record in responding to complaints in the past. But number two, these processes are built around legal definitions of sexual harassment, which are pretty restrictive. In the case of hostile work environment harassment, for example, the conduct has to be severe or pervasive, meaning repeated over time. And a lot of what women experience in medicine may not rise to that level, but nonetheless is sufficiently distressing that it needs action. You write in your perspective article that health professionals have a moral duty to practice what you call upstanding. Why is it helpful to characterize harassment and bias as an ethical issue? I think it's helpful to characterize it as an ethical issue because it really acknowledges the harm that it causes. And that's both what we might call dignitary harm, a violation of the core principle of medical ethics that we should respect persons and their autonomy, and consequentialist harm in terms of damaging women's ability to be full participants in the teaching, research, and clinical care missions of academic medical centers. And when we recognize that harm that it causes in this way, I think it should promote reflection within organizations as to whether the processes and structures they have in place to respond to problems really capture and address the full range of conduct that we feel causes harm. And it should promote reflection among individuals about what we each can do to prevent the harm we see in the world. We know further that bystanders who see the conduct that they witness as an ethical problem are more likely to form intentions to intervene. And there's mounting evidence that bystander intervention can be very effective in addressing racial and gender discrimination. So, in fact, you say in your article that although many medical professional societies have ethical codes that mention sexual harassment, they fall short in not laying out clear expectations for what professionals are supposed to do in response to that kind of behavior. So why do you think there hasn't been that focus on harassment? It's a good question, and I'm not sure I have the answer. I think we'd all like to think that we can leave this issue to the wise attorneys and others at healthcare organizations who administer processes for responding to harassment. I don't think that's right, but I think we're just evolving in our thinking about what other bodies like professional societies and other norm-setting organizations and ultimately medical professionals themselves have an obligation to do in the absence of more robust institutional structures. So I think to some extent we may just be at the beginning of the curve in where we see professional societies taking their guidance. 
Have those sorts of medical society ethical codes led to changes in the past in other areas? Is there reason to think that if they actually did something, it would have an effect? Well, there are a couple of analogous areas that give me reason to think it would be helpful to have some action by the societies here. One is impaired physicians. So over time, we have seen the ethical codes and guidelines from the societies really strengthen their exhortations to medical professionals about what they personally need to do when they see a physician who has impaired competence due to general quality decrements in their care or a substance abuse abuse problem or any other problem. They not only have to report that individual, but they need to intervene personally in other ways to support their colleagues so that they can stop practicing and get help. And they need to actively assist colleagues as they recover from problems and resume patient care. That's a very different posture than the societies take with regard to sexual harassment. They're, at best, if it's mentioned at all, they're exhorted merely to report the conduct to institutional processes. The other area that I think is food for thought has to do with disclosure of medical errors. As we saw professional guidance evolving, not only through the societies, but also through hospital policies, probably more importantly through hospital policies, saying that medical professionals have an obligation to disclose adverse events and errors to patients, we really saw an evolution, I think, in norms among uh, physicians in training and actively practicing physicians to a place where they now really do feel that when something goes wrong, they must say something to the patient. And interestingly, along with that evolution, there sprung up just a variety of institutional support to help providers discharge that obligation. And that's a really important point, that as we impose these additional ethical obligations on professionals, organizations have to be there to help them carrying them out because they are hard and they involve behaviors that need to be learned for many professionals that we know how to teach. And they involve circumstances that require a lot of psychosocial support for professionals as well. Can you give some examples of what upstanding looks like in practice? And does it vary with the severity of the transgression, with the context in which it occurs? There's a whole range of options for individuals. And in the article, we lay out even some suggested language that could be used in different situations. And we suggest that the key point is to do something and that something can be calibrated to your position in a power hierarchy, your ability to do things without enormous personal risk to yourself, the severity of the conduct that you're witnessing, and the likelihood that each type of response would be effective in your particular organization. So at the very low end of the spectrum, a reasonable response to some types of conduct might be simply to document it in a journal that you can go back to and call upon if you see this kind of behavior occurring. At the extreme other end would be for somebody who is in a position of power to sit down with a perpetrator and say, look, we're removing you from duties that involve contact with women or trainees until we can figure out how to make your lab or your service a more welcoming place for women. And in between are a variety of other intermediate steps that might involve privately supporting the target of the behavior, for example, pulling her aside and letting her know that you saw what happened, that you disapprove of it, that you're there to support her and asking how you can support her, to asking questions of the perpetrator in the moment, either in an open meeting or open context, or by pulling him aside and asking, you know, with an attitude of curiosity, what did you mean by that? Here's how it sounded to me. I worry that others will perceive you as X, to reporting the behavior and triggering 
institutional processes not limited to sexual harassment, but also, for example, having a department chair convene a meeting to refresh people as to the department's expectations for professional conduct. So you mentioned the the potential power differential. How can medical students, residents, and even non-physician health workers be encouraged to speak up when they witness bias or harassment? I think in that conduct, the, the peer support is going to be very important. Just again, knowing that somebody else sees things the way you do when you hear one of these comments directed at you that, and that they are your ally is very helpful a lot of the times for targets. But also, of course, every trainee ought to have somebody higher up in the hierarchy that they can go to with their concerns. And so while that trainee may not be comfortable deploying some of the strategies we suggest in the moment, like saying to the attending physician, that's sexist. They might be more comfortable going to a mentor, another female attending, and saying, look, I saw this behavior that concerns me. And then she can deploy some of these strategies that are more appropriate for individuals who are more secure with their power position. Finally, you've talked about the role of training and education in supporting professionals in discharging all of their ethical obligations. Whose responsibility is it to provide that education? And how can those lessons then be continually reinforced? I think this is programming that professional societies absolutely could provide. And the healthcare facilities themselves, of course, as part of the range of things that they do to create a culture that is supportive of their medical professionals. They can offer training in bystander intervention. Of course, they already offer sexual harassment training. And they can, through their communications in everyday department and service meetings, communicate that this is an expectation of the leadership of that department. They can model that behavior in their own professional lives, and they can ensure that people feel not only that their door is open if they want to voice a concern, but that they are encouraged and indeed ethically required to voice those concerns. Thank you, Professor Mello.